Ralph Wardo Emerson uh, wrote a lot of things that were sort of addressed to himself, kind of uh, advice to himself, notes to self. And uh, one of the things he wrote was, all things have two handles. Beware of the wrong one. I think he, uh, I'm not sure, but I think he uh, might have been paraphrasing or even quoting the uh, Greek philosopher Epictetus. Um, but anyway, you can see how a lot of, uh, how that applies to a lot of what we've been talking about so far. Um, it's relevant to desire, how we pick it up, by what handle, by what direction, um, to eros, to this whole notion of clinging, as we explained, um, that actually, are we picking up as a key, or are we picking up as just something to reject just at one level? Uh, certainly applies to imagination and images in the conventional sense. Um, two handles. Certainly also to emptiness, and, and the, um, the, the Mahayana tradition makes this very clear. To grasp at emptiness in the wrong way is like grasping at a snake uh, at, uh, by the tail, the wrong end, while its head is just going to come and bite you. With regard to emptiness, I think it was Nagarjuna who wrote that. All things have two handles. And also uh, delineations. So how we relate to the very um, process of, of generating and making delineations, um, either in perception or in conception of both. Um, so it applies to all this. Now, what that little aphorism, um, I think it's not just saying... Um, uh, you can pick things up but don't cling to them or don't identify with them. Certainly that's part of it, how we pick something up. Maybe it would be more accurate to say all things have many handles. <coughs> so there's many ways this, um, this uh, admonition to care, how, from what direction, in what way we pick something up um, applies to all the things that we've been talking about so far. And with desire and with eros, there's there's a, you know, it's true at a certain level to say it, it's fire, and and one is playing with fire, to play with these things, desire and eros. It's, it's true, and there's heat there. Um, but, you know, wh where would human beings be if if uh, certain experimentation with fire did not take place at some point? Um, Yes, uh, that asks for a lot, you know. In other words, what we need to take care and need to have certain, um, perhaps, things in place, qualities, abilities in place. We talked about this before. But yeah, in a, in a way, we could say we're playing with fire to a certain extent. That doesn't always mean that the, like I said, the fire is raging. It's not always that it's super intense. To be intense, that the eros is very intense, the desire is very intense, the fire is very intense. Um, doesn't it, First of all, it won't always be that way for, for anyone. And secondly, intense is, is neither better nor worse. 
So from one sort of standard perspective, um, intense uh, desire, um, too simplistic, is, is a bad thing. From another perspective, again, too simplistic, it's a, it's a good thing. It's better for it to be more intense, more fire. Um, but what this asks, this investigation um, in, into this, this exploration of this whole subject, um, asks for a lot of sensitivity, the development of our sensitivity. I've touched on this in... Um, earlier um, teachings um, that it asks for a lot of subtlety in our attention and subtlety of discernment a very kind of keen um, uh, well developed sharp mindfulness if you like a very sensitive mindfulness um, sometimes very soft delicate mindfulness it asks for a certain adventurousness of spirit we could say um, to go down this avenue and see what happens and explore. It asks for a certain boldness, a certain freedom, we could say freedom to question. Uh, boldness to question, to question boldly, and to experiment, to dare to experiment and find out. How will I find out? I have to experiment. And if those things are in place, or we can bring them with us, or we can develop them as we go, um, all of that, then... Uh, this exploration, I would say, can uh, open up for us uh, radical possibilities, radical openings, radical shifts in our understanding, our senses, as I said before, our sense of the self, of other, of soul, of imagination, of world, of cosmos, of existence. Real revolutions um, are, are possible here um, for us. So the potential uh, with uh, an exploration of Eros is, is, is huge, huge and profound, wide and profound. And, uh, and, and we're talking about something um, that, if you like, is a, is a formidable force. It doesn't always mean it's intense. You know, so sometimes Cupid is the name, as you probably know, for the, is the Latin, the Roman name for the god Eros. And um, and some sort of uh, artistic or statuesque de depictions of Cupid are, um, you know, of this little sort of uh, uh, podgy little um, cherubic uh, baby angel uh, with sort of soft, rolling, uh, uh, pinkish, uh, smooth flesh, and and sort of maybe he's slightly mischievous with his bow and arrow and who he's going to shoot and kind of do the matchmaking thing. Uh, and that's kind of all, you know, a little bit cutesy. Um, compare that, for example, with uh, Plato's uh, description. Uh, actually, the, the words are put into the, into the mouth of Diotima, who's a, a kind of mysterious seeress and philosopher. And her... Um, characterization of Eros, I got this from a philosopher called George Bruns, who was a literary uh, critic. Um, uh, Diotima characterizes Eros as a hermeneutical daimon. Okay, what does that mean? Um, it means hermeneutics is interpretation, so his business is the interpretation of all things. Um, all things Eros has something to do with the way we see them and how we open up um, and see them as messages, as angels. Da da daimon is, you could say, another word for it, uh, a demigod or an angel or something like that. Uh, something given more than um, 
more than a purely personal or purely reductive um, existence and significance. So Eros uh, is a hermeneutical daimon who shuttles back and forth between gods and men, gods and human humanity, human beings, uh, between uh, being and nothingness, between what is real and what is less real, between wisdom and ignorance. Uh, and uh, this... Uh, Eros looks just like Socrates, which is to say shoeless, ugly, impoverished, cunning in pursuit of the beautiful and the good, a lover of wisdom and a master of jugglery, witchcraft and artful speech. Um, I don't know if you can... uh, I hope, if that's not... um, evident to you now just how uh, powerful and well captured that description is how, how much it points to the um, kind of accuracy and what it brings in to involve there um, a hermeneutical diamond shuttling back and forth between the divine and the human uh, between what is real and what is less real between wisdom and ignorance um, shoeless himself ugly always poor himself has nothing uh, do you, you get this in terms of, even in terms of what we've what we've described um, so far about eros itself has nothing um, cunning in pursuit of the beautiful and the good yes a lover of wisdom, of insight, and a master of jugglery, witchcraft, and artful speech. So his 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 uh, mastery, his realm, his art is the realm of art. Is not the realm of um, uh, sort of realist truth in the in the way that we tend to think about it. There's a lot in there, very beautiful, and certainly not a um, a little cutesy description. There, we're really talking about something. Bigger than us, because divine. Now we said already um, there is we could we gave a kind of small uh, start of a definition, if you like, of, of what eros is. But we also said, well, when we talk about this eros psyche logos dynamic, or rather, what eros instigates, inflames, invokes, elicits, and um, puts in motion. Um, because of its wanting more, um, in terms of the ways it expands, enriches, deepens, widens, um, complexifies, gives dimension to the images that it beholds of its erotic object, its erotic object as image, as in, in the imaginal dimensions, and the ideas, the logoi, uh, the, the concepts of that erotic object. Because of all that, the definition that we gave earlier, this wanting more contact, um, what did we say, contact connection, intimacy, knowing to know more, um, to wanting more pen- penetration, to penetrate more, uh, to experience more, etc., all that. That provisional definition is, is exactly that, just provisional. And so we can almost make a kind of axiomatic statement, a kind of fundamental statement that because... Um, Eros is not separate from this whole Eros-Psyche-Logos dynamic and what that does in its expansion. Um, I'm going to say we can never totally understand Eros. There will always be something of it, something of Eros, beyond our grasp, beyond the grasp of our understanding. And, and therefore also maybe something of it to which we are 
always subject because it's it's more than we can kind of get a, a full handle on, get our hands around. Um, that there may be something of eros to which we are always subject. We never feel like we got it under our thumb. Um, we never. Uh, it's always, in some sense, bigger than us, bigger than our minds, bigger than our capacities, in some sense. Now, this, of course, as I said, goes back to that whole. Um, uh, origin, if you like, of, of the whole idea of Eros as a divinity, uh, which is something Jung, Jung restated, um, which implies its uh, the impossibility of a full definition of capturing it or capturing it conceptually. But also, we can see um, if we if we think about the implications of this whole um, uh, idea that Eros opens up and inseminates and fertilizes psyche and logos, which then further um, inflame and inseminate the eros. Um, We can see that eros kind of has this tendency, because of the pothos in it, to keep expanding everything, or shattering boundaries, or stretching boundaries, um, whether that's an imaginal figure or a lover, the way I see him, her, whatever it is, whether it's a piece of art or a piece of music or an artist or whatever it is, um, that's my imaginal imaginal perceptual object. And Eros will will tend to expand, will want to, will naturally um, expand, um, open, deepen, complexify, etc., everything. Object and everything it's in relation to, but also because eros itself is tied up in 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 the large definition with the eros psyche logos dynamic, it means that eros itself also gets expanded, and this happens in two ways. It happens, as I said, because when the imaginal object becomes even richer even more deeper in its dimensions, even more wonderful, like a jewel revealing more and more sparkling facets and unknown wonders and mysteries, and becomes more rich, more deep, more wide, then there is more eros. There is more eros, more to penetrate. I desire, the eros desires to penetrate to what I'm now discovering, um, uh, and desires to open to what it's now discovering of the imaginal um, the erotic imaginal other. I see more there. He, she is more. I want to open to. I want to penetrate that eros wants to. So, so that so the eros itself swells. There's a tumescence. There's an increase. There's an empowerment. Um, the degree uh, of the fire, if you like, grows. The amount, the range, etc., of the eros. But in a second way too, because in all this. The image uh, and the idea, the psyche and the logos of the eros. In other words, how? What is the image that um, it is present of the very eros that's involved in this whole movement? So certainly, there's an image of the other and the imaginal other, and that's getting richer and wider. But then, then this spreads. We're going to go into this in more detail and all its implications. It spreads to, to self-reflect in this kind of auto-eroticism. I'll say more about that uh, in, 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 in talks to come. Um, so that the very way that eros is regarded, the very 
image of Eros and the very uh, idea, the logos of the Eros in the Eros Psychologotonaris, not just of the object, but also the Eros, those boundaries too start to stretch or start to shatter and then have to reform at, at a, a kind of in a wider, deeper, more um, spacious and generous and multidimensional way. So whatever and whatever um, ideas and images are involved with the eros, um, the, the psyche and the logos of the eros, so to speak, those two are expanded. You understand? So eros, whatever our notion, whatever our image or fantasy of eros is, that too keeps growing, gaining new dimensions, just by virtue of what eros is does and is and the whole eros psyche logos dynamic so the eros too as it starts to take on new dimensions take other other facets of the eros itself other resonances other um, breadths that it encompasses etc and reveals that we we discover in eros itself now this doesn't mean, uh, this does not imply the fact that we can never totally understand it because of this, all, all of what I've just said. We can never totally understand Eros. It doesn't imply that we shouldn't explore it, that we should then ask, ah, okay, well, there's no point exploring it or no point even trying to create ideas and con concepts that, that address it, that su uh, support our exploration. Um, that we should, it doesn't imply that we should stop trying to get um, uh, for our exploration inquiries to go further, to go deeper, to go wider into the breadth of Eros. Actually, to, to me, it should inspire a, a greater... Um, uh, a greater inquiry uh, and exploration. Um, wherever we are in our uh, understanding uh, of, of Eros, or wherever we are, if we're you know, building a, a concept or conceptual framework of Eros and adding to it, wherever we are in that process, there's more. There's more to discover. There's more to add here. There's more to find out. There's um, beauties and wonders and depths and dimensions to be revealed. So it should inspire. Um, rather than um, feeling frustrated because it's like, oh, I don't really get this yet, or I haven't sussed out, I haven't encapsulated it, I haven't figured it out. And even as I alluded to before, um, it, it, it could hopefully even give us a sense of okayness and perhaps even rightness when those times when we feel driven or dragged by Eros, um, it, 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 and, and the Eros seems as if it's bigger than us, or bigger than what we can figure out, or, uh, as I said, encapsulate in concepts or even in an image, that there we recognize, not only is that okay, there's maybe even a, uh, a, a, a profound rightness in that. So I don't know, um, maybe you've been listening so far to the talks here, and maybe, and I, I can say this for myself, um, <clears throat> leaning a little bit into um, trying to be a bit more precise and a bit more analytical about delineating between different concepts, and 
uh, and and qualities that we recognize when eros is present and how we delineate it from this and that and, and um maybe some of you are listening and actually perhaps starting to feel a little uneasy at times uh because maybe feeling as if we're being too precise and too analytical. So I have felt that at times in just in the, in in the material that we've done so far, covered so far on this retreat. Not sure. Are we? Is the precision and um, a- analysis that we're bringing to bear actually has it? Um, at times, is it? When is it overstepping its soul-making function? It's gone beyond um, its function, its uh, uh, support of soul-making. When does precision and analysis, in this case, because what we're interested in is soul-making, that's what we're interested in, and when has it actually, the way that we're delineating things and with, with precision and, and making some analysis of how things relate and processes, etc., when, when does that overstep its soul-making function? It's not an easy uh, question. So on the one hand, you've got this notion that Eros is divine, and the fact that with, because of the Eros-Psyche-Logos dynamic, the kind of tendency um, of stimulating, inflaming, expanding, inseminating, fertilizing tendency of Eros um, uh, that, that it gives to Eros, Psyche, and Logos, and more as we'll, as we'll uh, explain uh, in later talks, um, b- because of the divinity and because of that Eurosychologos dynamic, there's always going to be some m- m- something mysterious retained about you, something unfathomable, some sense of more, more that I haven't quite uh, discovered, more to it, more dimensions to it. So on the one hand, all of that, this um, unfathomability, if you like, and, at the same time, on the other hand, a certain amount of delineating, of defining, of highlighting of features actually serves, uh, the, uh, serves the movement of Eros and the soul-making soul uh, process. So right here, in relation to delineations and definitions, we have, we have a dilemma. We have actually several dilemmas, um, but that's one of them. Um, there is, on the one hand, in, in approaching soul-making, in approaching um, things like eros, um, oftentimes what's more helpful, and I've talked about this before and leaned that way at different times in um, <clears throat> uh, both teachings and writings, um, it is leaning more towards the poetic and the mythical sense of it. It's a poetic understanding, poetic depiction, poetic presentation or unfolding that calls on uh, the, the poetics uh, of our understanding and a more poetic um, understanding, more poetic diction, a, a more mythical sensibility in um, exploring and receiving, in digesting, etc. Um, and, and when to emphasize that, how much to emphasize that relative to a more analytical. I don't know, so far in this retreat it seemed like it seems to me that we've been leaning more towards the analytical and in the past and in other stuff I'm working on right now, um, more the other way, both. Um, so there's, there's a kind of as a dilemma here, balance, I don't know, different people, different times, same person. But that's something uh, to bear in mind about all this, about um, making delineations here.
Actually, I want to say something, um, uh, something general, make some general observations, say some general things um, about making delineations in general. Uh, and, act- and in fact, I, I want to add to that and also say some general things about saying general things. Uh, if you follow me, uh, so something about general general observations about making delineations, and general things about um, saying general things. Um, now, I'm aware some of you might be like, "What?" Uh, and this is really abstract now. And it, 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 I don't know. You know, I don't know if you're listening whether this just sounds like pff, really not relevant or, or pretty vague or just you know kind of abstract or just like. Um, Maybe in time, um, maybe in time, hopefully, um, it, it will come to seem more relevant why I'm sort of saying these things now, generally about making delineations and about um, different levels of insight. I, I, hope, I hope that it does <coughs> um, make sense at some point and seem actually quite, uh, re- both very relevant and, and quite important. Um, it's interesting, just in terms of um, sort of insights that can sound more abstract, or that that have that are more general, um, that apply more generally, um, or that operate at a kind of higher meta level, if you like, meta, is that they can sound kind of vague, so much so that we barely hear them, or they make very little impression. Um, for many people, it's like don't really recognize the value when when they hear or read something at that level, or they sort of get it, but not 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 really. They don't really get the way sometimes these sort of meta level insights can have, because of their generality, have this um, really pervasive power. They uh, they general, but they generate an enormous amount of other insights. They uh, link things together, make certain ways of proceeding um, as they open certain whole avenues, not just a little a little uh, nook and a crack here, but whole avenues. They generate a lot through their generality um, and their pervasiveness and their sort of uh, um, all-pervading applicability uh, and their implications. So oftentimes, you know, um, I'm a teacher or something, and, and a person, uh, many people remember a story that I told or or a certain image re- recounted. It strikes, uh, it stays in the memory, it makes, it makes an impression immediately. Um, and this is very, I think, probably normal for the ways that we tend to understand, the ways that most people tend to um, understand as human beings, take in, take in information written or or um, or, or, or uh, listening, um, or or when the advice seems very, very, the insight seems very, very specific, um, when it's obviously relevant to a situation that I, I find myself in immediately. But actually. Um, there often is much greater power, as I said, a much more far-reaching sort of embrace and influence and implication in in these other more general, uh, in in a sort of more general meta level of insight. Oftentimes, so it seems also that it's quite rare. I think um, uh, it, it's quite rare. Or it's a rare person who um, actually kind of 
has an ability to recognize a sort of relative hierarchy of significance of ideas or insights. Um, sometimes it's almost the opposite. It's as if the, the more significant ones and, and the ones that are kind of really radical, you know, ra- radical is from the word radix, meaning root. They really go to the root of things uh, in their generality and their power and their implications. Um, are, are it, people have a hard time sort of recognizing what's a more radical, far-reaching, pervasive um, uh, sort of meta-level insight and, and, and something that's uh, much smaller just because it seems immediately tangible, immediately obvious, immediately applicable to something that's right in front of me now in, in a very obvious way. Um, so that's just, you know, the way most people's minds work. But um, in a way there's an encouragement there to... Uh, to try and um, reflect on uh, this material, especially especially when it might seem a bit like conceptual or or that kind of level, um, in a way that starts to build something for you that's really helpful and and will be really powerful, and as I said, radical and far-reaching in its in its implications. Because one of the things um, I wanted to say about um, delineations, making delineations, is that again, most actually not, not certainly not all, but a lot of a lot of people, a lot of people um, appreciate clarity um, when they're reading something or some hearing teachings or whatever, um, and it can seem um, very easily that something has been made clear to us. Um, if we are presented with, if we read, or if we hear kind of neat, well-delineated distinctions between things, between uh, concepts, between qualities or factors of mind, and so sometimes people say to me, oh, you're really clear, and, uh, you know, um, etc. So that is something that, you know, I, I do definitely try and do sometimes. So I'm not... Um, I'm certainly not wanting to throw that out. This is this is where the dilemma is coming. I'm not wanting to throw that out, and I'm certainly not um, advocating a kind of general sloppiness or inattention, or and certainly not confusion. That, that, that is often not that helpful. Um, but I would say that, or just kind of point out that I think we should get, we should start to feel a little bit suspicious. If um, the neat distinctions that we have made ourselves or that we are being presented with by a teacher or by a piece of writing or whatever it is, um, uh, the neat distinctions are, we should be feel suspicious. Our suspicions should be aroused if those neat distinctions seem to be being regarded by, by anyone, whoever is presenting them or the, we, ourselves listening or whatever, as real. Should be suspicious if these distinctions are, are presented as as delineating real things, as accurately and simply reflecting the reality of things. This, um, it, if we sense that a person is, uh, or we ourselves are, kind of slipping into that very common assumption and position, then I think our suspicion should be aroused. Um, or we suspect that someone or we ourselves are clinging to them 
um, these distinctions or these things that are delineated by through through distinctions um, and definitions, clinging as if they're being clung, if we suspect they're being clung to as real. Remember, that's a, that's a form of avijja, that's ignorance at the deepest level. Um, if, if they're clung to as real, or as reflecting simply, accurately, the reality of things, we should, we should uh, be suspicious. The Buddha Dharma, especially in the Mahayana, um, this is made uh, really, really clear. Those links, we said this before, those links of dependent origination, um, they are not real. All... Uh, Dharma concepts are just ways of looking. They're just ways of dividing things, and they don't reflect reality. They're ways of looking, ways of delineating in the service of something. So that I would say, um, along with the Buddha, you know, why did he say after his enlightenment, it's hard to understand this dependent origination I've discovered, hard to understand, um, subtle, profound, um, only the wise can see it, etc., very famous quote. I'm not sure whether I want to even try teaching this. There's a whole structure of concepts that he's not saying this is reality. He's saying, look this way and you'll understand something about reality. And eventually, I think I've said this already on this retreat, the very insight that's generated by the structure of the delineations of dependent origination, those links, etc., if we approach it the right way, melts those very delineations and distinctions, melts the very links, so that the whole thing... um, uh, it, it's like a snake eating its own tail, swallowing its own tail. The whole thing dissolves. Um, so this is um, the question: is how to move? I don't just shrug and say, "Ah, oh, yeah, no concepts." If I just shrug and say, oh, "All concepts are false," uh, I'm just left with my default concepts. I haven't gone anywhere. Uh, all I've done is probably a little bit of uh, reinforce a little bit of laziness and sloppiness. How do I actually get from delineations, um, through those delineations, into a much more profound realization, much more profound freedom, and actually even beyond those delineations? Um, so that's uh, definitely there in Dharma teachings. The question is exactly how can I approach these teachings in ways that do that? And that's where I go back to the idea of ways of looking at fabrication, etc. Um, for me, that's a very powerful way. But but that uh, insight um, uh, uh, about the suspicion of neat distinctions is there in Western philosophy as well, and even even back to to Plato. You know, used to um, make fun of certain char- characters who were so so fond of making these um, distinctions very clear, very neat, and they get kind of ridiculed a little bit in his dialogues, and and Hegel as well, another one who gets a lot of stick, um, but actually. Partly, his you know extraordinary insight was that um, any um, belief in clear concepts as if they reflect reality just doesn't stand scrutiny. As you as you as you as you look at it and bring more investigation to bear, it um, you see it involves its opposite. It doesn't hold the boundaries um, fracture, etc. 
And we can see this in our own practice, just as the mindfulness, as I said, gets keener, more subtle, more sharper, uh, more sensitive, as our investigation gets um, more, uh, you know, deeper, um, more directed, more cunning, if you like, and as our insight grows, we will witness this too in our very own experience. Um, So just for example, um, at first, the Vedana, the pleasant, unpleasant, or some people call neutral, neither pleasant or unpleasant, the, the three categories of Vedana, and, and the um, distinction between Vedana, say, and craving. Here is this pleasant feeling, and then there's the craving to get more of it, or to move towards it, or to hang on to it, or whatever. Or here's this unpleasant, and the craving to push it away, to get rid of it, to reduce it, whatever. And it seems like the Vedana and the craving are two different things. It's very important to delineate two different things and actually see in our experience, yes, here's two different things. I can see A and I can see B. And I see, and I then see their relationship. As I go deeper in insight, that very distinction starts to blur. And we start to see it's a kind of illusory distinction. No, no Vedna, no craving. No craving, no Vedna. Craving and Vedna are inseparable, as are craving and clinging. We touched on that before. As are avidya and sankara, a very deep level. As are, in fact, all the the five aggregates, or certainly the mental aggregates. It's like perception and consciousness. They are not two separate things. They're divided up in terms of the aggregates. The third and the fifth aggregate, they are not separate. Perception, Vedana are not separate. Perception, Vedana and consciousness are not separate. Sankara, they're all, the aggregates are not referring to separate or separable things. Um, They're not real distinct entities. The delineations are made to serve a certain purpose, um, but they are not reflecting, reflective of reality. And we can see that in 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 any domain, and certainly with with Dharma concepts. So that's another di- <coughs> dilemma re- regarding making d- delineations in terms of clarity and our sort of um, the illusions of of clarity or the seduction of what seems like clarity. And there's another uh, p- potential. Um, potential pitfall or, 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 or danger making delineations is this um, as I mentioned earlier when we delineate something uh, like eros from desire or craving or whatever it is um, in doing that we amplify something we amplify uh, uh, a thing through a distinction distinguishing it from other things and and so we're delineating a theme or an area or a quality or whatever in a way um we're creating it in a way we're we're discovering it and we're creating it we'll come back to this create discover sort of um amalgam or duality later but in a way we're we're actually creating something um for our experience and reflection um, and then we've got this thing called eros. And then in relation to that um, area of experience or that theme of eros, it's possible that it becomes uh, uh, an area where we then pass judgment on ourselves. So here I've created this thing. We've created this thing, whatever it is, uh, create something called samadhi, and then lo and behold, we start measuring where we are in relation to our samadhi, or our insight, or liberation, or um, or eros, or whatever it is. 
Um, in a way, I think uh, this, this. I'm not sure if he actually said this, but um, but in a way, it comes out of some of the insights of, of Michel Foucault. You know, in regard, let's say, to sexuality. In fact, so he pointed out in his sort of archaeology of the, the the history of the whole sense and, and idea of sexuality that you can trace it back and um, in a way how how much more uh, defined and complex and solidified and prominent it is as a concept now related uh, to to which the sense of self um, then uh, relates itself or attaches itself. In other words, that um, over the past hundreds of years, uh, several hundred years, um, two things have grown, and they've grown together. Um, one is the, the, the sense of sexuality, or sexuality as a sort of theme um, of, of human um, psychology, of human behavior, of human being. And with that, not not just dependent on that, but with that also, the whole idea of individuality, self, and identity, um, which, is, as I mentioned before, is is a lot more uh, is different now in the kinds of uh, interiority and and the prominence of individuality um, than it was, let's say, several hundred years ago in in Europe. Um, um, so sexuality become this, becomes this thing in this area where um, my, my identity and the measurement of my identity is so often wrapped up and oftentimes in not a very simple way and also quite a painful way because of judgmentalism and, and, uh, and actually a lot of ignorance and not, not knowing. Um, uh, is, is my identity is wrapped up with sexuality. Sexuality is wrapped up with my identity and individuality. And what's my sexual expression? And how am I um, presenting myself sexually? And how am I in bed? And da 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 da. You know. So there's a lot of potential and beauty that comes out of that. And there's there's um, uh, a, a kind of danger there. So, so we bring forth eros, or we create eros, if you like, as a theme. We amplify it as a theme, and then with that, if we if we explore, then we have questions, like a, a ton of questions in our exploration. Like I threw out, um, uh, how then do we keep eros alive, which is different than meta? How do we keep eros alive in a long-term relationship? Um, but we need to be careful with, with all this because, as I said, we, we might be creating another area in which to judge ourselves. So, I've failed. Uh, I'm an erotic failure. <laughs> or uh, my, my, rela- uh, my, my relationship is a failure um, in terms of its eros. Um, I should be this or that. It should be this or that. There's something wrong with me is there something wrong with me everyone else i bet is did it you know whatever um so you know you, you can see it again you can see it with samadhi that most people um actually nowadays it's uh it, it's more of an issue because people uh, there's a kind of hype about attention and performance um, at work and pr- productivity, and so people really are into developing their sort of cognitive functioning uh, with different apps and, and all that sort of stuff. And um, um, but you know, generally speaking, um, unless someone's really been exposed to um, uh, a re- you know a kind of t- 
teaching or retreat or situation where people are just really talking about being mindful and being present and not being distracted and coming back and staying steady and vitakka and vichara and being, then, then, then people really start to measure where they are with their samadhi and it becomes this thing that otherwise they wouldn't even have given a second thought they wouldn't have made it a big deal or a painful thing in their life. So similar with eros, the distinction opens up a beautiful avenue and it can become then um, something we, uh, we we unfortunately measure ourselves with. So, dilemma here. Um, a double-edged sword. Um, but creating, discovering is part of um, different <coughs> themes, different areas, different dimensions of our being, of, of the being of the, uh, of the other. This is what is a part of what the Eros Psyche Logos dynamic does. We'll come back to this. It does create, discover more and more creates and discovers more and more and more and more dimensions, more and more little cracks that become open open into areas, like saying that they're, they're getting your foot in the door and then it opens to a whole avenue. Um, distinctions, delineations are made, othernesses are made, all this. So it's a double-edged sword. Beauty, soul-making there, but a dilemma, or many dilemmas. And sometimes people say, you know, we're pointing out the differences between different teachings uh, and also delineating concepts creates dualities. It creates otherness uh, or othernesses. Pointing out the differences between different teachings and delineating concepts um, creates dualities and creates otherness. Now, that is true. Um, And sometimes that even creates... Uh, or, or let's say this it's true uh, but it's not always bad just the creation of duality in itself or differentiations or othernesses is not necessarily always a bad thing that leads to dukkha again, don't careful of being too simple here and you know, even um, the, the, the different sort of schisms among, let's say, psychoanalytic schools or psychotherapeutic schools, you know, you could say, oh, that's terrible, and all the difficulty and the interpersonal difficulty and this and that that comes out of it. On the other hand, look at the richness that came out of it. Look at the creativity that comes with a schism. Um, so it does, it's not only that it just simply leads to dukkha, and even in, the, in Dharma, um, uh, you know, practice, you can see going back to this idea of ways of looking, Delineate between different ways of looking. You've very, you know, really subtly different um, ways of looking, and you see, let's delineate between two ways of looking, whatever they are. One um, uh, fabricates more dukkha and more perception, and one fabricates less, and that brings me an insight, and it brings me more freedom. But it comes out of delineation. So delineation is not duality. Is not. Problem there is actually something that's um, really can be profoundly helpful, profoundly fruitful. And if I make a delineation and then it brings some ease and some some um, freedom and uh, less fabrication, actually there's the possibility there of of then making even more refined delineations, even subtler um, uh, delineations between con- uh, concepts, etc., and what 
degrees of clinging, etc., and getting even less fabricated, fabricating even less dukkha, fabricating even less perception, the level of insight that can come out of that. We've, we've explained this before. So it's not just that, oh yeah, I find a way of being or a way of looking that kind of feels pretty groovy and pretty relaxed, and clearly there's not much suffering there, and then I just kind of kick back and relax and kind of, without too much tightness, kind of surf in and out of that. Great, but limited. Okay. Uh, the creation, if you like, or the creation slash discovery of dualities, polarities, othernesses is intrinsic to uh, the erotic process, the, the, the process of eros psychologus, intrinsic to the soul-making dynamic. And we're going to explain more about this later because it's quite um, quite important. And so the same wrapped up in that is also complexity. You know, as I said, when the eros-psychologus dynamic goes, uh, this this um, gets going. This the the imaginal object, the erotic, uh, erotically charged other, um, the the erotic beloved, gets complexified, um, complicated in in a good way. As I said, they're like a, like a jewel that you suddenly see. Oh, look at that! It's got even finer. Um, um, what's the word, facets, uh, etc. Et and, and, and the way it reflects the light in the different ways of the different facets, its beauty is increased through its complication, its depth, that there's more to discover there. So complexity also, um, not always, but also is, um, generally speaking, or rather on the whole, is, is generated, created and discovered through the soul-making process. So again, I caution against this sort of um, addiction to simplicity, this simplistic addiction to simplicity, what I call simplism. So the the question is, um, when to be simple and when not to be simple? Or actually, even more accurately, um, what, in, in this situation, what will a simple perspective give me and what will a not so simple perspective give me? In this situation, what will a simple perspective give me and what will a not-so-simple perspective give me? What exactly? Where will it take me <clears throat> if I look in a, in a way that simplifies and if I look in a way that um, actually seems like it's not so simple? And on the other hand, you know, sometimes you get... Um, uh, we, we, as human beings, we make... Or we're, we're actually, again, listening to teachings or reading something and someone is... Um, so either we do it or someone is kind of offering something to us, some distinction or other, and, and, and it actually doesn't serve anything at all. So what's the point of that distinction? Doesn't free you in any way? Doesn't bring any more, any more freeing insight? Doesn't open soul-making? It's just a kind of pedantry. So again, there's a kind of insight in really, um, again, delineating what, what delineations are actually worth making, or what is the what are the particular results of of making certain delineations? And which ones are just like what's the point of making them? Really doesn't serve. They may sound clever or you know whatever. It's just it's just a pedantry. So there's there's this is what I mean by a meta level of insight, um, M E T A. Um, so actually learning. Uh, how to look, how to create distinctions, when to pull back, what kind of distinctions, where they, where each of them will take me, 
daring to find out and, and toss out the ones that are not helpful and pursue the ones, even though they seem, well, it's not it's quite tricky. Um, it, I can sense there's richness here, there's, there's, there's treasure to be discovered of different kinds. So, for our purpose on now, on this retreat, primarily it's like, which distinctions bring soul-making? When does a certain delineation um, increase the serve uh, and support and nourish the soul-making? So, for example, as, as we said, just the distinction between eros and greed is, to my mind, um, uh, and I hope you, you will see, um, it's a distinction that helps soul-making. They don't just tip it, tip it out, uh, eros, because it's kind of desire, and desire, I've heard, is a bad thing. Trying to live without it, live without clinging, etc. We talked about that, but even the distinction, say, between joy and happiness. <clears throat> so I would um, define them slightly differently sometimes to to, to actually open up um, uh, a, a difference there. Joy, I would say, is is a kind of um, is a kind of happiness. Um, uh, that's that's richer and deeper, if you like, um, in different ways. We'll go into that another time. Someone told me this is second hand, so I'm not sure if it's true, but uh, I've I've heard it. Um, that in Tibetan, in the, in the Tibetan language, there's only um, two words for emotions: happy and sad. Um, in fact, it, I'm still not sure whether I quite believe it, but um, but apparently there's just two words. It's a very unlike English. It's a very very simple language, and there's two words for emotions. So you're either happy or you're sad. Um, I'm guessing there's a le- there's a word for equanimity because that's a Buddhist word. But anyway, um, uh, happy and sad. And um, someone was telling me that they knew a Tibetan uh, who then moved to the West and learned English. And and they were reporting after some years experiencing emotions after they learned English that they English that they never knew that they had before. Um, is it that that the language is highlighting something that was there anyway, or is it that the language is actually creating new emotions? The the very delineation creates something, or both. I'd say it's both myself, but. So this is interesting in its relevance to soul-making and to fabrication. We can very easily uh, believe that, or be taught, that words are thoughts, and thoughts bring discriminations, and discriminations have to do with papancha. They create papancha. So uh, don't get entangled in words. Don't get... um, Because they uh, feed thoughts, which feed discrimination, which... um, which uh, feeds papancha. So there's a way that's true in the original meaning of... uh, Well, actually, there's a way that's sometimes true um, if papancha and fabrication are are equated. Um, That delineations create fabrication. Sometimes, actually. Um... But it's also, as I said, that the, the word, say the word, um, the w- different em- words for different emotions, subtle shades of emotion, kinds of emotion, that actually the words serve to um, create delineations in our sensitivity and refinements of our sensitivity. And this actually um, stimulates 
fabrication, a, a diversity of fabrication, then, in, in, in the way a lot of psych, psychoanalysts or psycho, um, yeah, let's say psychoanalysts, use the, use the term consciousness. This then stimulates consciousness. That we are then conscious of some arena more because we've been given a delineation that opens it up. And some of that increase in consciousness can be soul-making. So the fabrication there is in, can be, some of it in the service, it's possible it can be in the service of soul-making. New doors, new experiences, new understandings can be opened through, um, <clears throat> through making delineations, verbal delineations. So again, the simplistic spiritual teaching about get away from words and don't think or don't get attached to you know it's just um, it's it's appropriate sometimes and like so many things sometimes the very opposite is true there'll be more soul making um, uh, uh, more of the eros psyche logos dynamic uh, will be stimulated through um, the delineations of words through the magic of words sometimes there's that possibility so regarding delineations, fabrication, and soul-making, what, what can we say? Well, some delineations actually decrease fabrication. They, they lead to their... They, 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 they support certain ways of looking which will actually fabricate way less than we could have without that delineation. Some delineations will actually increase fabrication and actually uh, create problems or create subtleties of awareness or, or whatever. Um, the soul making could could be in in the greater fabrication, as we'll point out more and more on the retreat. Sometimes more fabrication means more soul making, or skillful fabrication is we could call soul making. And sometimes there is an element uh, of the soul we could say, or a dimension of the soul, uh, that um, the decrease of fabrication, the movement towards the unfabricated, and that spectrum there is also soul making in a different way. So, so the relationship there. There's all different, all the different permutations and possibilities in terms of making del- delineations, increase or decrease of fabrication, and serving or not serving soul making. It's not. It's not that simple, um, and and it invites our investigation and our careful attention and our, and our intelligence. <coughs> Why, why am I saying all this? <laughs> you might be wondering. Um, why am I saying all this? Well, um, because it will guide our work, or, or a lot of this will guide our work, certain material um, that we're exploring together in this course, um, certainly your practice, as, especially as it develops. You, you, you know, you, some, some of this will really guide that work and your thinking. Um, and you're thinking about these things and thinking about practice and how you approach practice. Uh, I'm saying some of it also really as a kind of um, apologetic is the wrong word, but justification for what's being presented here and for this whole structure and integrated path and the introduction of new concepts, etc., that seem kind of unusual or really counter to what we might have heard before. So it's in partly, yeah, I admit it's, in, it's a kind of... Um, feeling feeling uh, it might be important for some people to have that justification and to have it to make sense. Um, but there's another reason um, 
there's another reason I'm saying all this, and in a way I'm saying it for, let's say for the future, um, that what, what we're presenting here, and what we're going into here, and what we're kind of elaborating and building, if you like, and playing with, playing with building, um, in terms of concepts and practices and refinements of attention and all that it's not um, it's not a closed system uh, it might be integrated um, and maybe it seems that way but I, my hope is it's really not I'm not talking about a closed system um, my hope is that um, or the invitation really is that you know as time goes on in the future or very soon or whenever that you or some of you um, will feel like you want to or called upon to add to build um, to, to to what what is what we're talking about here and what we're sharing together here and exploring and um, experimenting with and presenting um, so I'm saying this for the service of opening an avenue that no one owns that other people can add to and build tributaries and other avenues that connect up or make more lanes in the highway or whatever the analogy would be um, or a building that then is added to and given given a whole extension or, or whatever it is. I'm saying it for the sake of creativity because there's a whole other way and I'm going to come back to this, there's a whole other way of a whole other dimension of practice which has to do with uh, the creativity of one's practice, or the creativity of even making one's own practice, making one's own path, making one's own dharma, creating, discovering one's own dharma, the eros and the soul-making of the creativity of um, dharma, or dharma as creativity. In other words, we can... Um, it's open. You understand what I'm saying? I know that um, that's kind of that sounds maybe like a big deal, and not everyone will feel called to that or attracted to it. But I'm saying this for the sake of um, an open, shared, creative project, so that if the time comes and you or uh, indirectly someone wants to make further delineations. Uh, wants to make further definitions, wants to add to something, wants to question something, uh, pull something apart, give it another level, um, etc. That all these generalities that I've said about definitions and delineations and the, the dilemmas involved in that, all that applies to doing that. The erotics of an open, endless, creative path, an open, endless conception and and the the um what is it to be wise and creative and insightful and playful and artistic um i'm not sure if those are the right words um in in one's relationship to that this is something we'll come back to in terms of the relationship with the path in general other 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 dimensions but hopefully that makes a little bit of sense and maybe Maybe it will.
make the sense that it needs to in the places that it needs to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.